Is Jesus really the only way to God? How can a loving God save some and not others? What would Jesus say to my LGBTI friends? Can I trust the Bible? How can a good God allow suffering? How can I find God's will for my life? Can I lose my faith and what can I do to grow it? If God is sovereign, do we actually have free will? Can women lead in the church? How would a Christian approach sex and dating? You're listening to the Caroline Springs Anglican Podcast. I think this is a really important question. What would Jesus say to my LGBTI friends? It's important not just because of the topic, which is uh, contentious and has been, there's been a lot of debate over, because I think it gets to the root of a question that our culture is asking, that our churches are asking, because maybe 5, 10, 15 years ago, the question was, what does the Bible have to say about it? And now the question is, is it good news? It's not whether it's true or not, it's is this good news for my friends who are lesbian or gay or bisexual or transgender or intersex? It's not whether this is true for them, it's is this good news for them? And the thing that we have to wrestle with is if the gospel is not good news, if Jesus doesn't have good news to offer those in the LGBTI community, then he doesn't have good news to offer anyone. See, the good news to all or to no one. So let me set this up by reading you a story of a guy. Um, true story. His name is Ed. Ed is 17 years old and a keen Christian and an enthusiastic member of his church. He's the eldest son of a family of believers. He plays guitar in the worship band. He runs a prayer ministry at his school. He's doing well academically and is well known locally as a sportsman. He's exactly the the sort of high-achieving young Christian leader that fills people like me with hope about the next generation. But... Since the beginning of puberty, Ed has been consistently attracted to other guys. What he hoped was just a phase has not passed, despite his prayers and best efforts to fancy girls. He's becoming an expert at faking heterosexuality and struggles to push away the attention of some of the girls whilst trying not to focus on one of the guys. Now, the church that he attends prides itself on its good biblical teaching and its leaders take their responsibility seriously, especially when it comes to explaining the church's traditional teaching on sex and relationships. And Ed has been told a number of times that sex is for the marriage of a man and a woman. And until then, he's to resist the temptation to be sexually active. He's been told what to do when he's attracted to a woman, that it's not wrong to notice beauty, it's not wrong to be attracted, but there is some dangers in second glances and mentally undressing in the places that can take you. But the problem is he's attracted to men. So even the first look feels wrong for him. But boy, does Ed want to have sex. He is now growing up in one of the most sexualized cultures that has existed since Rome, since Scripture was written. It's what the teenage life is all about, according to the magazines he reads and the television shows that he watches. It's what shows that you've grown up. It's what shows that you've become a man, that you have sex. 
And even in the church, it's built up to be this life-changing experience. There was a recently married couple who came to talk to the youth ministry about marriage and sex and relationships. And in a separate time where the male spoke to the guys, the male described that sex was the best experience of his life. And uh, man, how good is God for creating sex? Just you wait for it. He'll show you that it's good for them as well. But Ed won't be getting any if he holds to the church's teaching, if he lives in light of the Bible's teaching. And that seems unreasonable, to say the least, for 17-year-old Ed. Sex is everywhere. His desire for it is overwhelming. And his church seemingly says no to that forever. And at the same time, the television shows and the changing room conversations are telling him to go with his feelings and not with the scripture. His favorite television show has a gay character that he fancies and would love to be like, totally unashamed of his sexuality and getting loads of sex. And a couple of quick Google searches have shown him that there are Christians who think that permanent, stable, faithful, gay relationships are right in God's sight. So he might be able to get the sex he wants after all. He can stay a Christian. Seems to be the best of both worlds. That's the kind of person that we're talking to tonight. What would Jesus have to say to someone like Ed? What would Jesus have to say to the 40-year-old woman who for her entire existence has felt like the gender she was assigned at birth is the wrong one? That she's living in someone else's body? What would he say to the person who's only found intimacy and love and acceptance in a lesbian relationship? What would Jesus say? That's the question before us tonight. I want to make a couple of things clear before we proceed. One is, I'm not, I've never had same-sex attraction. Ever since I can remember, I've been attracted to women. And so I don't speak from personal experience. But what I, what I do speak from is a deep passion to see people treasuring Christ and making all of life about him. So that is what I stand on. The other thing is that as we proceed tonight, uh, I'm going to speak predominantly to the LGB side of the conversation and not the T and the I. That is the lesbian, gay, and bisexual side of the conversation, not the transgender and intersex. It's not because it's not important. It's because there's only a certain allotted time that I can speak, and uh, I feel like you won't appreciate me speaking for four hours. Um, but what you should do is ask that question next time we have this series, and ask, what would Jesus say to my transgender and intersex friends? And uh, I'll get to speak then as well. <laughs> um, so before we proceed, let me pray and um, we'll get into some text. Father, we thank you that we have your word to guide us, that you have your, we have your spirit to fill us. We pray that tonight that you will illuminate our eyes and our minds and our ears to hear what you have to say, that you can speak to us, that you can soften our hearts in the ways that we need to and the ways that we need to cling to you would be strengthened. Father, I above all pray that this would be the kind of church we're pursuing you above all other things as our greatest treasure would be the goal. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
So we're going to head to John 8, uh, chapter, oh, John chapter 8, verses 2 to 12. Use Bibles around you. Feel free to grab that one. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Uh, we want everyone to be deep into the Scriptures. And uh, so if you don't own one, please take that one. Uh, so John chapter 8 is a disputed text. That means that it's not in some of the earliest manuscripts. It's in some, some not, not others. If you want to get into that, ask a question and talk to me later, because um, I'd love to talk to you about that. But basically every scholar believes that this is a true event that really happened, that Jesus really spoke to. And I think it has a deep word for us on this issue, because it speaks to a consistent New Testament ethic, a consistent New Testament teaching. So let me read from John chapter 8. You can also follow on the screen. At dawn, he appeared again. That's Jesus. He appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. There's a couple of groups in the story already. We have the Pharisees, who are a religious and political sect that had uh, originated as a result to some culture that had come in. The Greeks had started to come in, the Hellenization culture, and the Pharisees believed that the orthodox teachings of the scriptures had been uh, compromised. And so these were the hardliners. These were the ones who wanted to take everything literally. There's another group here, the scribes. These were the ones who made it their job and life's prerogative to know the Old Testament back and front. They taught people what was in the law and how to obey the law. That was their job. And we have an unnamed woman who probably moments earlier had been caught in the throes of an illicit affair and been dragged through the streets, probably naked, finding herself in the oddest of places, the temple. Let's read what it says, verses 3 to 5. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? What do you say, Jesus? It says in verse 6, 
that they'd set this up as a trap, but they'd brought this woman who has probably had maybe a towel draped around her, but caught in the act of adultery to pin Jesus to an opinion. Jesus, what do you say? Are you going to side with the law of Moses or are you going to side with this woman? Are you going to sign with this sinner? Are you going to show yourself to be a fraud? Are you going to show yourself to betray the righteousness of God for this woman? Make no mistake, she is guilty. And there's a third thing going on is that at the time, Rome was pretty liberal with its religious groups. They allowed them great freedom to do whatever they want, but they did not allow anyone to kill someone. So if Jesus goes ahead and said, yes, let's stone her, the Pharisees and the scribes would take Jesus to the Roman authorities and say, Jesus said to put this woman to death. Let's kill him. So Jesus is caught in a conundrum. If he says, yes, let's stone her, he gets taken to Rome and killed. If he says, no, let's not stone her, then he betrays the law of Moses. So what does Jesus do? Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Lots of speculation about what might be going on here. There's some speculation that Jesus was writing the Ten Commandments on the ground. There's lots of speculation that maybe he was writing down individual sins, the Pharisees and the religious leaders. For all we know, he could have been updating his status. We just don't know what he was writing. But we know what he says next. Verse 7 to 9. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. This is a pretty misunderstood section of scripture. Because the common understanding is that unless you are perfect, unless you are sinless, then we cannot cast judgment on one another. That you have to be morally perfect in order to cast judgment. And that's not what it's saying, because if that's the case, then justice can never be done, because we're all sinners. No one will throw any stones. No justice will ever be done. What Jesus is actually, I think, alluding to is the Mosaic law. He's referring to the law the Pharisees are trying to condemn him with. It's a direct allusion to Deuteronomy 17 and 13 and 22. So here's a quote from Deuteronomy 17. The hands of the witnesses must be the first in putting that person to death, and then the hands of all the people. You must purge the evil from amongst you. So if you witness a serious crime, you must be the first to throw the stone. And there's other uh, directions for how the law should be given out. For instance, that if you know a serious crime has about to be committed, then you must intervene. You can't let it happen. And uh, there's also laws that state that someone must receive a fair trial. But most importantly, that the witnesses cannot be complicit in the crime. That is, you can't make a law if you've broken the law. So what happens in verse 9? Jesus causes them to engage in self-examination. 
He stooped down and wrote on the ground. And this is where this is where the Pharisees' argument against Jesus unravels because there's a couple of questions that need to be asked. If the woman is here and has been dragged through the streets naked, then where's the male? See, according to the law, both the male and the female need to be stoned. Why is it only the female? Well, maybe because she's weak and an easy target. Maybe the male has um, got some status. We don't know. Why has she been dragged through the streets? Why hasn't she been subjected, subjected to a fair trial? Maybe more importantly, why is, why is she here naked? Why? How did it just occur that the Pharisees just happened to coincidentally find this woman in the throes of adultery? The reality is probably that they laid in wait for her but they were so consumed with trying to find a trap for Jesus that they waited for this woman to be caught in adultery and then as soon as the act occurred, they dragged her out. But the thing is, they've just found themselves to be guilty. They did not intervene, witnessing a serious crime. They were complicit in what was going on. They didn't care about the woman. They didn't care about the law of Moses. They only cared about trapping Jesus. And so they showed themselves to be the frauds. They showed themselves to be those who did not care for the law. And what we find in verse 9 is that Jesus says, uh, well, John writes for us, at this those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. So what does this text have for us? Well, first and foremost, I believe that if Jesus was to say anything in this conversation, his first word would be against the church and those who have used their status and have used the scriptures to abuse and manipulate and pour shame onto those in the LGBTI community. A recent study uh, was released that of those within the LGBTI community, 85% of them had experienced at some point sexual abuse, physical abuse, violence of some nature. And the church has been complicit. We have been a capricious and merciless bully at times. And I choose those words carefully. They are not idle words, because what do bullies do? Bullies pick on the easy targets and leave the hard ones alone. You don't hear of bullies seeking out the toughest guy at school to beat them up for their lunch money. Bullies take on the easy targets. So what kind of people are we talking about? Let me read you a couple of stories. The church has beaten up targets like Eric Borges. He was raised in a conservative Christian home, and in his sophomore year of college, Eric came out to his parents and he told them that he was gay. After performing an exorcism on their son, they told him that amongst other things that he was a disgusting, perverted, unnatural animal and damned to hell. Later that year, they kicked him out of the house. Eric shared his story on YouTube in 2011, 
And in the video, he encouraged other youth who've had similar experiences that it gets better. Having suffered in a hissing cauldron of ridicule and torment, Eric wanted to help others find comfort and hope. And one month after the video was released, Eric killed himself. Closer to home, a pastor from NZ was approached by a same-sex attracted Christian who wrote a book about his experience and sent the manuscript through to different pastors. This is one of the responses from a Christian pastor. We are not interested in your filthy lifestyle or book. I pray that you commit suicide, you filthy child molesting fag. I hope we feel the weight of those words. That has been the public face of Christianity. Whether we like it or not, the first kind of words that the LGBTI community feels about the church is that they are hated, alienated, isolated, and rejected. And although we might not be the ones calling people child molesting fags, we've definitely been complicit. I grew up in a time where it was common to refer to things as gay, as a derogatory remark. Or maybe you called people fags, or maybe you said no homo. And there's a deep vein in our culture at the moment that wants to put these remarks under, well, that's just a politically correct culture gone mad. Those things are fine. Well, for the Christian, the deepest thought must be, is this Christ-like or unchrist-like? And I think Christ would be ashamed of his church. Especially because when we focus on these easy targets, we've left out the difficult ones that actually cause us to examine ourselves in reflection and self-examination. For instance, what about the 2,000 verses that depict something that would cause someone to be outside of the kingdom of God? People would not inherit the kingdom of God. How about greed? You look around at the church and you look around at our car parks and we have nice cars that drive to nice houses where we eat nice food and we have maxed out our mortgages and maxed out our credit cards, not so that we can feed the poor or love the least or welcome people into our homes and start orphanages, but so that we can gorge ourselves. Look around at yourself and at the church. What about obesity? When's the last time you ever heard a sermon on obesity? But according to the scriptures, gluttony is a sin. Gluttony's cause is greed. You're desiring food and you can't control yourself. Discipline. Discipleship literally means discipline. Right? When's the last time you ever heard someone call out his church? For obesity. No, we don't do that. That's a culturally acceptable sin. And so we leave out the difficult targets that would cause us to self-examine ourselves. It would cause us to put ourselves under the microscope and instead focus on the easy targets. And you know what Jesus calls people like that? He calls them whitewashed tombs. People have had a nice layer of paint coated on. They come to church and we look nice and we can play the part and we can seem holy, but you open up the door and inside is a rotting mess filled with sin and evil and wickedness. 
oft said is the term, hate the sinner and love the sinner. You might have heard that before. I think a more correct rendering of New Testament ethics is love the sinner and hate your own sin. For if you are unprepared to go to war against every fiber of your own sin, then you must be unprepared to go to war against someone else's. And friends, as a church, we need to own this, that we have been the cause of shame and condemnation in the LGBTI community. So Jesus goes on, verse 10, 11. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one else condemned you? No one, sir, he said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. What's going on? Jesus comes up and says, I don't condemn you. Is this because Jesus has a low view of marriage, that adultery doesn't matter, that he's just moving with the times, that he's a progressive kind of dude? Well, no. Jesus had the highest view of marriage. What do you read in Matthew chapter 19? You see this, some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him, then asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? Next slide. And said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. Famous words of marriages. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife away, uh, give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Those are wise words. Jesus' view of marriage is so high that the disciples' words are, this is difficult. Jesus is not just leaving this woman and saying, it doesn't matter. He has a high view of marriage. If you read the scriptures, God's plan for marriage is very consistent. From Genesis to Revelation, one woman, one man, in a covenant under God. There's no uh, time or place where that is altered. So what does that mean? That means that the young, engaged couple who are having premarital sex are in sin. It means that those who are watching pornography in secret are in sin. And it means that the person in a same-sex relationship who's having sex outside of the covenant of marriage, one woman, one man, is in sin. But what happens next? Does Jesus condemn her? He's the only one who could. Jesus is sinless. He could cast the first stone. No, he doesn't condemn her. He doesn't abandon her. Instead, he does the most radical thing, which was to forgive her. Jesus has stood up against the might of the religious leaders to the point where they walk away and love this woman. One of my favorite verses that uh, I think everyone should get on a coffee cup. Um, I said that once and realized that here's the people here don't get Bible verses on coffee cups. They are not that kind of Christians, but that's okay. 
This is, comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So if you were to uh, start a coffee cup collection, this is a good one to start with. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindles will inherit the kingdom of God. Whew. Let's do a little social experiment right here. I just want you to put your hand up. You fit in one of these categories. If you have been sexually immoral, if you've slept with someone outside of marriage, if you have been an idolater, if you have worshipped something other than God, if you have been an adulterer, or if you've been a man who's had sex with men, or if you've stolen something, or if you've been drunk, or if you've been greedy, or if you've told a lie, or if you've swindled someone, maybe just put your hand up. Yeah, look around. It's an equal foot under the cross, isn't it? Each and every one of us stands here unholy and righteous before a holy and righteous God. There are some weeks we walk into church with this spiritual kind of swagger. I almost made it to church on time this week. You have no idea how many of you need to hear that. Right? We walk in like we ace some kind of holiness exam. Well, I got the Ten Commandments, I got the Bible, Jesus, and I'm pretty damn perfect. But what the Scriptures explain is that you took the test and you failed. You didn't score a mark. And you stand before a holy and righteous God, unholy and unrighteous. Your greed has condemned you. Your sin has infected you. So what next? What, what comes next? What could be good news? Well, verse 11. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Church, come on. That's the good news. This is what you were. Idolaters, adulterers, drunkards, swindlers. And what are you now? Washed, sanctified, set apart, and clean. Because of who? Through faith alone, by grace alone, Christ alone. So we go back to the verse. How could, how could Jesus forgive this woman? I mean, she's guilty. This is not... a you know, a difficult case. She's been caught in the throes of an illicit affair. She's guilty. So how could Jesus forgive her? I think Jesus could forgive her because he knows where he's headed. He knows what's happening next. He knows where his mission is. That he knows in the coming chapters and verses of Scripture, he's going to die for her. That's why Jesus can forgive her. It's not because he's a progressive dude who's just rolling with the times. It's not because he has a low view of marriage. No, it's because he knows that this woman will be set free through him alone. You can even notice the parallels, because like the woman, Jesus was cast through the streets and dragged with shame. Like the woman, Jesus had false accusations laid at her. Like the woman, 
Jesus faced a court and was condemned guilty. And like the woman, well, unlike the woman, he was actually put to death. What does that mean? It means that for anyone who trusts in Jesus, they are washed and sanctified and set apart and made clean. It's one of the most beautiful Christian doctrines that we are reborn. That you were like this, but you're not anymore. That you are made new, made fresh, new desires, new affections, new hearts, new status, new identity. Through who? In Christ. And so often what we do is we say, well, the LGBTI community, they're outside, they can't be in the kingdom of God. Let me be frank. Being lesbian or gay, having same-sex attractions doesn't rule you out of the kingdom of God any more than heterosexuality rules you in the kingdom of God. The only thing that gets you in the kingdom of God is faith in Christ alone. He makes us fresh. He makes us new. So we go on to the end of the passage, verse 11, the very end. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declares. Go now and leave your life of sin. I think most people will be with me up until this point. That, uh, yeah, we can talk about the gospel, we can talk about being made free, but is it, isn't it a little too far to declare that uh, same-sex relationships are sin? That homosexuality is a sin? That's been the discussion over the last 10, 15 years. And there's been some good arguments that have come forth from the affirming crowd, that is, those who are fully accepting, fully affirming, go for your life, have a faithful, long-term, monogamous, same-sex relationship. And I think there's uh, four arguments that they actually use, four questions to differing levels of uh, success. But I think it's helpful for us to grapple with that. So these these are the four different questions that I think um, pose some difficulties for us. So a common one is, what about shellfish and Leviticus 20? So you may have heard this before, that in Leviticus 20, God condemns eating shellfish, and he also condemns same-sex relationships. Well, we eat the shellfish, surely we can just let this one go. Well, the scriptures actually have an inner, inner hermeneutic. That's a big word. It just means that they have a way of being read. So according to uh, the Old Testament law, there's actually three kinds of law. So one... There's a ceremonial law. That's for the Levites, right? for the priests, a way of being made holy and being before a holy God in the temple. Now, there was also a civil law, a way for Israel to be a nation under God. See, they are theocracy. That means that God is their ruler. Okay? Very different to us. And then there's a moral law, which is for all people at all times in all circumstances. We put in things like pedophilia, bestiality in the moral law. Now, what happens is that we go, well, which shellfish, same-sex relationships, they're in different categories of law. Shellfish was a civil law for Israel. It was a, it was a ceremonial law, but it was not a moral law, where same-sex relationships were. Well, uh, number two, I think this is a pretty uh, confronting question for many of us. Well, Jesus didn't say anything, and if he did, it would be affirming. Now, um, I, I often have conversation with people about same-sex relationships, and they say, well, the scriptures are very clear about it. 
Well, actually, there's six verses, six verses from Genesis to Revelation that talk about same-sex relationships. And uh, it's right, Jesus doesn't say anything about same-sex relationships. But I think there are some clues that uh, help us see what he may have thought or may have said. Because there is a contention here that if he didn't say anything, he probably would have been affirming. That's kind of how Jesus was. Well, if he was to be the first affirming, um, if he was to be affirming, he would be the first Jew either 500 years either side of Jesus to be affirming to same-sex relationships. So we don't find in Jewish writing 500 years either side anyone who affirms same-sex relationships. In, fi- in fact, we find the opposite. They're universally non-affirmed. Now, that's not evidence in itself, but it's a comment. Jesus would be very out of the ordinary. Furthermore, Jesus didn't say anything. If he did, it would be affirming. The interesting thing is that Jesus actually strictens, he makes stronger the sexual ethics for many different cases. So in Judaism at the time, there were two different uh, schools of thought. So there was the school of Rabbi Hillel and the school of Rabbi Shammai. And so when it came to something like divorce or remarriage, they had different opinions about what the law of Moses said. And so Rabbi Hillel had a, uh, a, a liberal view, maybe, a, a lesser view. He said, well, if a woman burns soup, that's totally grounds for divorce. You can just get rid of her as, as you wish. And uh, Rabbi Shammai, on the other hand, said, no, the only grounds for divorce is adultery. Well, when faced with going between a lenient sexual ethic and a strict sexual ethic, guess, when, guess which one Jesus chooses? He chooses the strict sexual ethic. Jesus often does this. He says, you have said it, heard that you're not to uh, sleep with other men, but even if you think of having lustful thoughts, right? He strictens. That's not a word. I've said it twice now. <laughs> it's been a long day, friends. What else? Well, Jesus makes clear, very clear in Matthew 19 that marriage is between one woman, one man for life and the only thing that can separate them is adultery. Jesus has a very high view of marriage but he also makes it clear that it's between one man, one woman to no other. And I think the final view that actually reveals a little bit of really poor theology is who we believe Jesus to be If you ask that question, then you've just restricted Jesus to his earthly life. But who is Jesus? He's not only the Son of God who came to die for his people, he's also God himself. He has existed from eternity past to eternity future. There was nothing created that was not created through him. So that means that the entirety of Scripture, who was written, authored by God, Jesus was there. This isn't like, oh my goodness, imagine what God said in Leviticus. Oh no, what am I going to do? He was there. Third question. The arc of Scripture leads us towards full acceptance of the LGBTI community. So this is an argument that, okay, maybe uh, the Scriptures themselves don't support full acceptance of LGBTI relationships, but the arc of Scripture does, in the same way that the Scriptures move from slavery towards non-slavery, that they move from violence to non-violence, that actually Jesus uh, lessens the sexual ethic. But as we've seen, that's not the case. Jesus always makes it stronger. When Jesus taught about the Lord, inevitably was to make us holier. 
I don't think this matches up. In fact, two uh, same-sex attracted males, um, Ed Shaw and Sam Albury, both make the statement in their books, one is, um, does God hate gay people? The other is the plausibility problem. That one of the things that most convinces them that the scriptural teaching is not for same-sex relationships is the whole scope of scripture, which is consistent throughout that marriage is between one man and one woman. The last one. I think, this, I think this is the hardest one to grapple with, to be honest with you, because it actually has an element of truth. The Bible's writers had no conception of faithful, monogamous, long-term, same-sex relationships. And it's hard because it's true to some respect. So the majority of uh, male relationships who would have had been same-sex were immoral, were uh, manipulative, and they would have been condemned by almost all Christians today. So uh, majority-wise, same-sex relationships would have been pederasty. Okay? So older men with younger boys. And it had to do with power. There was a power imbalance. You weren't seen as gay if um, you slept with a male. You were seen as gay if you slept as the passive partner because you were stripped of your power. So the, the argument is, well, the New Testament writers were talking about a completely different thing. They've got no idea what they're talking about. The modern conception of faithful, monogamous, long-term same-sex relationships has no basis in the Scriptures. Well, I, I agree with them to some respect that um, Paul is probably talking about pederasty. He's probably talking about power imbalances. But in Romans 1, he also talks about female relationships. And um, from the writings that we have at the time, we know that though power imbalances didn't exist in female relationships, that the manipulation didn't exist, and that they most likely were faithful long-term relationships. What does Paul say in Romans 1? Um, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Um, in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. I think has an element of truth that what Paul was talking about was mostly manipulative relationships. But he also had the opportunity to um, delineate his opinion. He had the opportunity to define further fine details and didn't. Throughout the Old and New Testament, the ethic has been committed, long-term, male-female relationships for marriage. I don't think the affirming questions change that. Um, so where do we go from here? If we hold to the fact that the consistent New Testament ethic, the consistent scriptural ethic is one woman, one man, covenant under God, what does that mean for Ed? What does that mean for our friend? What does that mean for our friends who want to follow Jesus and pursue him? Um, I think that there are two outcomes, and we'll, we'll grapple with those. One is an honest prayer that God would change your affections. Now, what we know is that um, for the majority of people who are same-sex attracted, their desires do not change. That's what we know. That's the experience. 
But I also know people who have changed. People like Rosaria Butterfield, who was a, um, a feminist, queer theory writer, um, had an experience with God, and over time her desires to be with women changed. We're going to hear from her a little bit later. So that could be an option. But I think um, what the far stronger option is, is celibacy. The Christian teaching over time has been faithfulness in marriage, chastity in singleness. You may have heard that before. That's difficult. Someone like Matthew Vines has this to say about celibacy. He's an affirming writer, and I think this is a powerful comment. No other teaching that Christians widely continue to embrace has caused anything like the torment, destruction, and alienation from God that the church's rejection of same-sex relationships has caused. If we tell people that their every desire for intimate sexual bonding is shameful and disordered, we encourage them to hate a core part of why they were created to be. And if we reject the desires of gay Christians to express their sexuality within a lifelong covenant, we remove them from our covenantal God and we tarnish their ability to bear His image. Mm. So if our teaching is that to faithfully pursue Christ as a same-sex attracted Christian means either desires changing or lifelong chastity, lifelong singleness. Is that plausible? Is that good news for our friend like Ed? The short answer is it's not. It's not plausible. Not if the picture that is being painted is correct. If sexuality is the primary force that defines who we are, then chastity and celibacy are not good news. However, if the primary defining force of who we are is Christ and my status in Him as a son of God or daughter of God, then it can be good news. If family is defined as mom and dad and 2.4 children and nothing outside of that, then this will be a weight too hard to bear for those in the LGBTI community, our friends there. But on the other hand, if we look around at the gathering throng of brothers and sisters in Christ, this will not be a hard yoke. Often. If we hold to the idea that intimacy is to be primarily found in sexual relationships and not in friendships, this will be difficult. But on the other hand, if we look to the scriptures and find that there are relationships like Jonathan and David who actually found greater intimacy in friendship than in sexual relationship, then we can rejoice as well. If we hold to our culture's view of celibacy that is always bad, and always leads to unsatisfying outcomes, then pursuing Christ in this way will be implausible. However, if we consider the life of Jesus, and we consider the life of his disciples, who are men of God and the Son of God, who are fully alive and fully satisfied, having never married and having never had sex, then we can be content that we can also be fully alive and fully satisfied, not having sex. If we hold to the idea that suffering is always to be avoided, not only will most of the New Testament teachings prove to be a rude awakening for you, but we'll also miss out 
on what Scripture actually teaches, which is that suffering, we should rejoice in suffering. Why? Because suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces what? Hope. Suffering is not something to be avoided. In fact, it's a virtue in some ways, because it produces hope in us. Finally, if we subscribe to the idea that the greatest compass that we have is our feelings, then this will, be, this will be hard. But on the other hand, if we declare that the greatest treasures are to be found in Christ and Christ alone, and that is to guide our every step and thought and word and deed, this is not only plausible, but room to rejoice. What does the Scripture say in the book of John? The kingdom of God is like a man who discovered a great treasure in a field and sold everything that he had. To everyone else, he looked a fool, but to he who possessed the treasure, he had something of infinite worth. So the question is, where do you sit? Does sexuality define who you are? Does family look like mum and dad and 2.4 kids rather than the throng of the family of God? Is suffering to be avoided at all costs and comfort to be sought? Does Christ's word about his promises and his treasures actually hold true? Or are they just fanciful words that we say at church and then ignore them for the rest of our lives? Because I think Jesus would have words to say to our LGBTI friends. And I think it would be something like this. I think he would say something like, you are loved and accepted in my kingdom, but I am the one and the only one who defines who you are. What I say about you matters more than every other person's word about you. I think Jesus would say something like, whoever leaves mother or father or brother or sister for the sake of the gospel and for the glory of my name will receive a hundredfold, not only in the lifetime to come, but in this present age. I believe Jesus would say that there are treasures to be found that cannot be discovered whilst in marriage. That there are amongst us people who experience same-sex attractions will discover treasures in Christ that I as a married man will not experience. I believe he has promised us that. So what we're going to do now is we're going to look at some videos. We're going to hear from two uh, different Christians who, uh, who would at one time identified as gay, identify as same-sex attracted, have decided to be celibate for their lives and pursue Christ to his glory. And we're also going to hear a word from Rosaria Butterfield, who was a feminist, queer theory, lesbian, tenured professor um, about how the church can treat those in the LGBTR community. Um, so I encourage you to look at the screen and uh, I'll come up and close after. I'm going to finish with a couple of words. I think there's a couple of different groups in our church Probably there are those who are experiencing same-sex attraction. Statistically, we know that. We have a church of about 150 to 200, and uh, we know that there will be people here who are experiencing this in real ways. And so we want to say to you that if you are experiencing same-sex attraction, this is a place where you can come and be loved and accepted, that we will help you be a disciple of Christ 
for the rest of your life. So this is a place where you can make all of life all about Jesus in the same ways that every single person here will make all of life all about Jesus. You'll be challenged to give up some things. You'll be encouraged to treasure Christ above all things. But you will be loved in the same way that each and every person who put up their hand earlier and was able to say, I'm an idolater, I'm an adulterer, but the cross of Christ has washed me clean. And there's probably our church, the people who are here, who maybe for the first time realise that they actually need to repent of the words they've used, of the actions they've taken against the LGBTI community, that their words and actions have decidedly looked un-Christ-like upon its self-examination. Maybe it's not like the New Zealand pastor. Maybe it's just calling someone gay or calling someone a fag or derogatory comments at work. All the boys are doing it. Maybe you actually have to repent. We can be the kind of church where each and every person who comes in can honestly say that this is a place where they can make all of life all about Jesus, where there isn't barriers to doing that. So whether you are same-sex attracted, whether you're a prostitute or a tax collector, wherever you come from, this is a safe space for you to pursue Jesus. And the reality is that there are people here tonight who disagree vehemently with me. They would disagree with the category, they would disagree with my thoughts, they would disagree with how I interpret the scriptures. I would just pray that you would sit with me and honestly examine what I've said, examine the scriptures, examine the research that's been done. Um, Because I think, as Jono said earlier, this can actually be a place where charitable disagreement can be done well. And I appreciate that I've talked for a really long time, and so I thank you for sticking in for the long haul. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing, and we'll answer some Q&A afterwards. Um, But let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that your word is true and your word is good, that when you declare that you have good news for us, that there is good, that it's not a trade in which we discover that actually the goodness has been hollowed out, but we discover the treasures you have for us are not only good, but the best thing for us. I pray that we could be the kind of community that encourages each other to faithfully pursue Jesus and treasure him above all things. That we would help challenge each other, help encourage each other, one another, and accept one another, even when we fail. Father, where we need to repent, I pray that we do. And I pray that your spirit convicts us. That we cry out to you, not only in worship but in anguish, and our own evil and wickedness. But Father, I pray that we can rest as a community in the fact that Jesus has washed us, that he has sanctified us, that he has set us apart and adopted us through his spirit in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jimmy, can someone be born same-sex attracted? Mm. Um, I want to be really careful with this because I think the, the short answer is we don't know and the long form answer is it's really complicated. <laughs> Um, So the American Psychological Association just came out and said that it's a complicated web of both nature and nurture. 
So there's a biological element to it, but there's also a nurture element, there's a cultural element to it. And so some people on either side sort of want to um, go deep into that and they want to say, well, you know, it's biological and therefore it's good. And I, I don't really want to affirm that. And there's some people who are conservative and non-affirming who want to say, well, it's, it's a choice that everyone makes. And I don't really want to affirm that either. I want to sort of sit in a middle camp and say I'm unsure. Um, scripture tells us that um, desire and temptations aren't sin, um, but that they can lead to sin. So it's not a sin to be born um, same-sex attracted. Um, so can someone be born same-sex attracted? Potentially. We just, we just don't know enough. Um, there was a recent study that came out and said um, that genes, that they haven't found a gene for same-sex attraction um, and that can't be found. I, I, don't, I don't know if I want to say more than that. Um, I think there's been a lot of, a lot of aspersions cast based on shallow research and if American Psychological Association isn't willing to say anything, I'm not really willing to either. Um, I, think, I think the question down the line, and I said this this morning, which I think is helpful maybe, is that there is a line of thought that, well, if God made me this way, then I should pursue it. If God made me um, same-sex attracted, then that's good. But I think it actually, it's, it's very close to the New Testament ethic around um, following Christ. Because I think the New Testament ethic is um, be who you are. Right? Be who you are. But the, the slight thing that, that gets changed and, and warped a little bit is what we talked about in 1 Corinthians 6. It says, you were like this, but now you are like this. You were idolaters and adulterers and liars and swindles, but now you're washed and sanctified. And so I, I want to say to the, maybe the question behind the question, um, be who you are, but who you are is washed and sanctified and adopted as a son and daughter of God. Be that person, um, which I think is far more important. Yeah. All right. All right, this is a, this is a small novel, <laughs> short story. So just feel free to grab whatever jumps out at you, all right? Sure. Um, how do Christians overcome being misconceived, for example, in... America, which passed laws for same-sex marriage, um, but in relation to Romans 13, which says, obey the government. What do Christian pastors do with marriage or Christian cake shop owners asked to bake same-sex marriage cake who uh, in turn lose their business for standing on freedom of conscience in the free West, um, who in these cases say they love LGBT persons and have loved and served all peoples? You're right, that is a small novel. Yeah. Um, let, me, let, me, let me address a couple of things. So how, does, how do Christians overcome being conceived poorly is by acting like Jesus did. I think um, most often we've actually been conceived rightly <laughs> or perceived um, as unloving and unaccepting. Um, so hang out with the kinds of people Jesus hung out with. When it comes to Romans 13 and obeying the government, well, we can obey the government as long as their laws uphold the word of God. When they differ, we obviously don't. So we would have a, a difference of opinion about something like abortion. Um, so we are pro-life, even though the government is not. Um, so we obey the government as long as it upholds to the word of God. Now, um, we had the question this morning about the, uh, the Christian baker. And I, I said this, and I think it holds up. 
I think the Christian baker should bake the cake to the glory of God in the same way that they bake the cake for the adulterer and the idolater and the um, swindler and the thief. All right? I think it's not one or the other. I think we should remember, you know, who, who we're actually working for. Um, now, when it comes to something that might be pro-same-sex marriage, it's a, it's a conscience issue. Now, um, for some, that might mean that they refuse to bake the cake. For others, that means that they might not bake the cake. Um, as for the last question, what do we do with when um, they stand up on a conscious issue and they might lose their business or they might lose their practice? Well, what did we hear tonight from Jesus? Whoever gives up for the sake of the gospel and for the glory of his name will receive a hundredfold in this life and the age to come. I think Christians have a really poor view of suffering and persecution. I've said this before and I'll say it again. Um, if we trust Jesus is who he is and that he's promised what his promises. Uh, so if we actually hold on to what that is, then we can be like Paul and be content in all situations. Yes, that will be, include suffering, um, but whatever we lose in this life, we'll gain in eternity. Um, would you like to add anything? No, that's good. Thanks. <laughs> all right. Um, two more questions. Um, Okay, so a typical gay or lesbian family comes to church. Mum and mum, or dad and dad, plus 2.4 children. I'd like to see that. That would be... Is that a baby? No, that's no. not. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to make fun of this question. It's a good one. Yeah. A, a typical gay f uh, or lesbian family comes to church. Mum and mum, or dad and dad, plus 2.4 children. Does the church act to split up and break apart the only family that these children have ever known? Or does the church act to keep this family and both parents together? Hmm. Good question. Well, I actually got Jono up. <laughs> do, you want, do you want to have a first crack and then I'll have some remarks after? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, uh, so I, I think it's um, broadly speaking, it's good to think about Christian ethics um, in this way. In Christian ethics, the ends never justifies the means. Mm. Um, I think a, a pop popular ethic of the culture around us is that, well, whatever you've got to do to get it done, as long as the end is a good point, then. And in Christian ethics, I think we're uh, partially because we're people of the book, and we believe that God has revealed his will to us, um, we, we don't forecast the ends in order to justify the means. So in this situation, we don't say, it works in reverse, right? We don't say this situation could end, end up breaking up the only family that these children have ever known. So therefore, we turn a, we turn a blind eye to, to what we believe to be um, a sinful lifestyle. We don't do that. We, we obey God. God and trust him uh, that his will, like Jimmy has said over and over again, um, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So, um, so in that respect, we obey God and we say um, we exist to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength and to love our neighbour as ourself and we embrace you, we want to love you, um, we, we thank God for you. And here's what we believe God has revealed 
about how we ought to live our lives as Christian people, as his people. Mm. And then we take it one day at a time. Mm. And we don't forecast the ends before we can see them, um, but we walk faithfully with them. And you just insert anything into that equation. This is a a peculiar example um, and a particular example, uh, but... um, but, uh, but this, this community here is just awash with brokenness, I can tell you. And, you, you, like, I hope that doesn't shock anybody here. Oh, it's, no. it's, a, it's awash with brokenness. And so we are, God, by his grace, is teaching us mm. how to walk with broken people. And the good thing is we have a lot of experience in our own life, um, our own stories. And so, um, uh, yeah, and so uh, we ought not be blind to some of those concerns about breaking up families and so on, but I think we need to be, um, we need to be consistent in living out what we believe God has revealed to us about it. I think I might add two things. Um, that I don't think it's the first thing that we do. <laughs> it's not like, ah, oh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lesbian family here. Let's break those guys up, right? That's not how we act, because that's not how we act with the engaged couple who has premarital sex. It's not how we act with the person engaging in pornography. No, we love them, and we are in conversation with them, and we're praying for them, and the Spirit convicts them. And we will call them to holiness, and we will call them to Christ. But um, that doesn't happen with a sword. (laughs) Um, The other thing is that I think the question might be making the same mistake as a lot of um, marriage advocates do in the public sphere, which is that oh, we should maintain the um, current understanding of marriage as being one woman, one man, because that's the best thing for children. Um, and I, 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 I would agree with that. But I also think it's, it, in the end, it makes it out to be idolatry. <laughs> I think our culture widely idolizes marriage as the greatest means and the greatest ends. Um, and it's not. Marriage isn't the greatest means and it's not the greatest end. It's a good gift from God. Um, but you know, I'm, I've been married three and a half years and uh, it's great, it sanctifies me but if it breaks up you know, for whatever reason um, you know, I'll still be able to glorify God <laughs> it won't be the worst thing that happens to me because the worst thing that happened to me has already happened that is I offended a holy and righteous God and was cut off from him um, so that's what I might say <laughs> Yeah. All right, man. Well, this is the last one. Mm. And it's, uh, if I am same-sex attracted, how will I be treated in this church? That's a good a great gag question. question. Yeah. Um, I think it's a little bit like this sermon. That there's so many things I want to say, and what is the best thing to say? Um, I want to say that if you are same-sex attracted and in our church that we will use every fiber of our being to help you pursue Jesus to the best of your ability, to the best of our ability, and to the best of the Spirit's ability. Um, that involves calls to holiness, it involves calls to community, it involves calls to worship, it involves calls to discipleship. So if you are same-sex attracted and part of our community, you'll be treated like everyone else. Everyone else who put up their hand and said, I've offended a holy God and I desperately need him, that's how you'll be treated. So there will be no form of community that you are cast out of. There will be no sphere of leadership that you will be removed from. 
Um, and in fact, um, John and I talked about this previously, but if there are people within our church who do move to um, denigrate or um, abuse the scriptures in order to bring shame on you, we will bring church discipline against them. Um, yes, we are for traditional understanding of marriage. Yes, we are um, for holiness. But we also want you to know that you're loved and accepted and fought for um, and deeply loved. The, the, the other thing to be said, I know I've spoken so much tonight, um, is this isn't a, this isn't a, a theoretical issue. This isn't something that um, we just, oh, let's talk about same-sex marriage. That, seemed, that sounds like a good idea. No, the reason why it came up and the reason why I fought to speak on this is because I've got friends and um, many friends who experienced this and have felt shame from the church. That's the place we come from. So if you are same-sex attracted, I hope that you found our church to be loving and accepting and welcoming in and that we fight for you and fight for you to be made more like Jesus. Yeah, it's good. Um, and just a word to all of us. Let's just make this about all of us. If you're here tonight and you struggle with any kind of sin or temptation, and again, all the hands go up, then um, for God's sake, please, please plug into the community here. Part of that is about attending church regularly because in the gathering of God's people, he gives us grace and strengthens us, strengthens our faith. Um, but but um, we want you to go further than that. So please do um, get involved in a small group. And there's eight or ten people in the room who are all sharing their struggles. Um, it becomes a lot easier for me to share mine. And, and then I think the next step, uh, and this is not just for the real, the people who have a, a lot of issues, this is for everyone, to get into a uh, partnership with one other person or two other people, specifically for uh, accountability, mm. being able to confess our sins to one another, as the Bible tells us to, and, um, and, and, and unless you do all three of those things, I'm not, I'm not sure how well you're going to go trying to follow Jesus. I know I don't go well without doing all, all three of those things. Um, so, so, yeah, so let me be an example for you of a, someone who struggles a lot and gets a lot of help. We should all, we should all avail ourselves of the, the help of, um, of our community. Mm. If you want to know more about that and how that might look, then come and chat afterwards. Um, that's it, man. Um, thank you. Thanks, Jimmy.